We welcome you to our Bible study as the Radio Bible Class streams across the nation and around the world. We bring to you a message how Christ ministers to his disciples after the resurrection. We greet you on the internet and radio and Twitter with a message that Jesus is alive today. Now today we have a special treat. My brother, Pastor Nate Carter from Frontline Christian Center down in Boca Raton, Florida, will be delivering the message and it comes from Florida and it is entitled, When God Ran. Before we get to that, Christian Radio is not free. If you enjoy this radio ministry, your offering to this ministry will aid in the expense of keeping the radio Bible class on the air as a witness for Jesus. You can send your tax-deductible gift to Word Talk, Inc., P.O. Box 4334, Meridian, Mississippi, 39304. Or give us a call, and you can give your gift over the phone safely and securely at 601-483-8648. Now, your gift to Word Talk Inc. is IRS approved as a 501c3 tax-exempt ministry. Jesus said in Luke 6.38, Give, and it shall be given unto you good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. And now, here's my brother, Nate Carter from Frontline. If you have your Bibles and would turn with me to Luke's Gospel, we're going to be looking at the 15th chapter of Luke, and we're going to be starting at verse 20. I've entitled the message, When God Ran. I'm excited about this message because I believe God has a word for us today. You're here not by accident, and God has a purpose for you being here, and I believe he is going to touch you with his word. Verse 20 of chapter 15 says, So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. I want to start with a statement. People who were nothing like Jesus liked Jesus. And he liked them back. Think about that. People who were nothing like Jesus liked Jesus. And he liked them back. I just think that's an incredible thought to think about, certainly if you're a student of the Word. Jesus had this magnetic way of attracting people that were nothing like him. In fact, the people that we find that were most uncomfortable with the temple and all the religious garb and the way the temple system made them feel, like ostracized or shunned or ceremonially unclean or rejected. The people that felt most uncomfortable with that temple system felt most comfortable with Jesus because Jesus had this way, this magnetism to attract or draw people to him that were nothing like him. You know, something that's interesting, if you're a student of the Bible, if you look at Mark and if you do an assignment and circle every word that is crowd, you'll discover that in just about 
every chapter, you will find that word crowd because Jesus had a way of attracting people, of attracting the crowds. I think that's pretty fascinating. And many of these people had nothing in common. They were nothing like Jesus, yet they, for some reason, liked Jesus. Now, it brings us to this important point. The Bible tells us that the church is his body. That's you and I. And so what is true of Jesus personally should also be true of us collectively. If people that were nothing like Jesus were attracted to Jesus, doesn't it make sense if we're going to be a reflection of Christ or if we're going to be conformed to the image of his son that we also should have people that are nothing like us that somehow like us? But I wonder in our churches today, does that happen? Do people that are nothing like us like us? A few years ago, I worked part-time at a store called Sears. And there was a young man there who came on, and they hired him as the manager. And I began to work with him, and, and he was a fine young man, but he was an atheist. And one day, he, he just declared he knew I was a pastor. He said, I want you to know I'm going to hell. He knew I was a pastor, and he knew that would cause some type of response. And guess what? It did. I said, you have no idea what you're saying. He says, well, I don't believe in God. I don't believe in hell. I said, there is a God, there is a hell, but it was never meant for you. Jesus came many years ago to save your soul because he loved you. And we spent many hours talking about Jesus and all the miracles Jesus did and why Jesus came and why he was important to God. And finally, at the end of our conversation late that evening, he made a declaration. He said, well, I'm going to be honest with you. I just don't like Christians. If Christians were more like Jesus, this would be a better world. And I thought to myself, oh my goodness, out of the mouth of an atheist comes a profound statement of truth that if the church, if Christians were more like Jesus, this world would be a better place. In fact, we should be the most likable people in our community. Whether they agree with our message or not, people should like us even though they may not be like us. And Jesus had this way of attracting people and attracting the crowds and attracting people that were nothing like him. In the first verse of our text, chapter 15 of Luke, verse 1, I want to start there. Verse 1 in the NIV says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. Now, I think that's a fascinating passage. First of all, I want you to notice the two groups there, tax collectors, and the second are sinners. I mean, even at this juncture of biblical history, there's labeling already beginning. Adjectives. I mean, tax collectors. And we set up a group for tax collectors because we don't want to offend the sinners. And so everywhere Jesus went, and here's a great example, the tax collectors and sinners were gathering around to hear Jesus. And not far from the crowd, on the fringe, there were also another group of people called the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they were always trying to trap Jesus or defame Jesus or find Jesus in some type of fault so they could declare him a heretic. 
And they were constantly trying to trap him. Look at verse 2. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered. Notice what they say. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. This man welcomes sinners. That word welcomes. Notice what Jesus was doing. He was welcoming sinners. Now the, the Pharisees are like, you know, Jesus, we just really don't get you. I mean, you came as a religious leader, and you never invite us over. You came as a religious leader, and you hang out with the non-religious people. I mean, you said you came from God. You even said that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And Pretty offensive, but anyway, you came. You, we know who you claim to be, and yet you attract all of the wrong kind of people. We just don't get it. This is confusing to us. And Jesus has a way of, of speaking into each and every group, each and every label. First of all, uh, the Pharisees didn't view people in the way that reflected the Heavenly Father's view of people. In that particular day of biblical history, people were viewed in, in different categories. There were the good people or the bad people. There were the acceptable people or the unacceptable people. There were the unclean ceremonial people or the clean ceremonial people. There were the men versus the women. There were the men versus the children. And you find all these categories. And so Jesus decides to, to present a teaching to teach people how to view the world differently, how to view people differently, how the Heavenly Father views people. And so he does something remarkable, and Jesus is the master teacher. He speaks three parables. Two are about lost things, and one is about a disrespectful son. All three of these parables go together. They really should be one. Many times pastors and evangelists, and even I've done it, we kind of separate. and We pick this verse or that verse, and we preach on it. But really, all three of these stories, all three of these parables go together. Because Jesus has a point that he wants to make in this lesson, and he has a way of getting everybody's attention. Now, he doesn't mention the topic Jesus is wise enough not to tell the audience what he's going to speak on. He just starts. And for many people, if you're not a shepherd, this may seem confusing. But in that day, especially the men understood shepherding. So in this first parable, primarily he is touching the heart and emotion of the men. Now notice what he says in verse 8. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Now, as soon as he says that, every one of these men understand. They, are, they know shepherds. They've been around shepherds. They work with shepherds. They know exactly in their culture what, what to do. They already know the, the answer to this. And Jesus goes right to it. He says, doesn't he leave the 90 and 9? Well, we, we don't think of that in our culture. We go, hey, if I lose one, I've got 99 more. But in that culture... They would leave the 99 and go search for that one sheep. And notice what the Bible says. And Jesus says, doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And everyone in the audience, the tax collectors, the sinners, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, 
all of them, for the first time probably ever, they all agree. Yep, that's what you do. If, if you have 100 sheep and you lose one, guess what? You go after that one. You leave the 99. Yep, that's what you do. And notice when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. In the next part of that verse, he says, then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me. My lost sheep has been found. The point he's trying to get across is there's rejoicing that takes place when you lose something and then you find it. There's something about that that feels good. When we lose something of value, we focus on what's lost to the neglect of what's unlost. You lose something of value, knowing you have a lot of unlost stuff doesn't bring about any emotional encouragement or value, does it? Notice in verse 7 what Jesus says. He says, I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. And then Jesus immediately goes into the second story, the second parable. Now, women, this really is geared toward you. Jesus has a way of doing that. He, he kind of caught the attention of the men, and now he's addressing a subject that really primarily, all of us can glean from it, but primarily is to catch the attention of the women in this story. I want you to notice what it says. Look at verse 8. Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. So what? Who cares? I mean, that's kind of how we would look at it. But in this day, these were important coins. There are several different interpretations of what these ten coins represented. And I've heard preachers share on this, and they're all good. They really are. But this is the way I kind of view it, and I feel this particular direction. Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins. Notice, what does she have around her brow? She has these coins. And it's kind of like a dowry. This was given to her by her father. And it's kind of like this. Hey, guys, marry me. You get these 10 silver coins. Notice she's got a coin missing at the top, doesn't she? And, and so Jesus is pinpointing in into the emotional nature of, of, of all of us, really. And this woman loses one of those coins. What is she going to do? I mean, there's no way that she's going to leave the house looking like that. She's going to find the coin. So Jesus, look what he says in the next verse. He says, doesn't she light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And so she searched and she searched. Notice verse 9. And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me. I have found my lost coin. There's something that, that happens when you lose something. There is grief. There is stress. There is panic that takes place. But when you find it, there is a joy. There's this release. There's this, this relief of stress. There's this joy that takes place. When we lose something of great value, we go to great lengths to find it. And here are these people. You've got the men. They're... Okay, I understand the sheep thing, and you got the women over here, and they're like, okay, I, I understand the coin thing, losing the, the coin and finding it, but what are you trying to say, Jesus? Now, we kind of know because we know the rest of the passage, but here are these people. What, what is the punchline? What is the point? What are you trying to say to us? 
And then Jesus goes into probably the most famous parable on the planet. He says there was this father, and he had a son. Actually, he had two sons, but this is really about one son. And this one son goes to this father, and he says, Dad, you know, I don't know how to put this. I, don't, I really don't know how to say it, but, you know, when, when you die, I'm going to get half of all of this estate. Is that correct? Yes, that's right, son. Well, Dad, it just seems like you're going to live forever. And by the time you do die, I'm going to be so old, I'm not going to be able to enjoy this estate and this wealth that you've accumulated. I've had this idea. I've been thinking about it. Why don't we pretend that you died and go ahead and give me half of all of my inheritance? What do you think about that? Now, think about it. What, what if that happened today? What if your son came up to you and said, Dad, I... I know you're the CEO, but would you go ahead and sell the company and give me half of the proceeds? And, you know, you and mom don't really need this big house. Why don't you move into a, you know, a little apartment and sell the home and give me half of the proceeds? What would you think? What would you do? Now, this father loved his son so much that he wanted to get him back. Because there's something that, if you have a son like that, that you know the son was already gone relationally long before he left home. I mean, the father tried to get him involved. He tried to talk to him, but he could never get his earbuds out of his ears to talk with him. He would never interact at, at dinner table. He was just doing his own thing. He didn't care about the family. He had his own vision. He had his own plan. He had his own strategy that he was pursuing. It didn't matter who it hurt. And so the father said, okay, son, I'll pretend that I died. And I'm going to sell and liquidate all of this wealth and give you half of the proceeds. Really, Dad? Yep. Okay. How soon can you do it? Well, it's going to take a little time. This is quite a vast wealth and estate. You know the story. If, you've, if you're a student of the Bible, you know what happens. The son receives all this money, liquidates his portion, and he's got his backpacks. He gives kind of an awkward hug to his parents. I mean, how would you say goodbye? You're just taking half of the fortune of this wealthy family. And he heads off, the Bible says, to a distant country. Here's this man. He's He's bought one of the lavish condos in that country. He's got a Lexus, I don't know, a cool car. Maybe it's got big wheels. Maybe it's something, you know, a Ferrari. I don't know. This guy is half of the wealth of his state. I mean, he is like blowing it. Money is no object. He's, you know, wine, song, dance. He's buying. And, and we don't know how long, but we know the Bible says that the father is sitting back at the home waiting and time passes because the father is willing to let go of the son spatially so that he can win him relationally you hear me that's good preaching pastor and so everything is squandered the bible says he finds himself in a pig pen it was not a pretty sight and he's feeding the pigs he's even eating what the pigs have and he says you know i, I really am missing home but I wonder if home is missing me. I'm homesick for home. I'm missing home. But I wonder if home is missing me. 
And there may be some of you here today that is at that place, or maybe you know someone that's in that situation where you've gotten far from God. You may be at the place where you don't realize how I'll ever measure up. I don't think I'll ever measure up, but I sure do miss home. I wonder if home is missing me. But after what I've done, after I've devastated my family and the wealth that, and the potential they had, investments, and after what I've done, and I'm sitting here in this mud and this pig squalor, and, you know, I, I don't deserve to be a son or called a son, but, you know, my father treats his servants better than I have it right now. Maybe I'll go ask my father if he will hire me on. And suddenly, this son realizes that he's been disconnected. He's lost. And he desires to be reconnected. And I love this part of this story. Here's what the Bible says. It says, he got up and went to his father. Now, that, first of all, this blows the mind of the people in the audience, the, the Pharisees, the tax collectors, the sinners, because their view of people is totally different. In fact, they don't view people the way Jesus views people. They don't fill in the blanks the way Jesus fills in the blanks about people. And it blows them away. And notice the next part of the verse. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with, how would you fill in the blank? Embarrassment? Anger? This is some of the adjectives that the people of that day would have used frustration, disgust. How would Jesus view someone? How would God view someone that has done something like this? Well, the Pharisees would say God would see them with disgust. I mean, first of all, the father has allowed this son to take all this well. So the people that are listening to what has taken place, here's what they think of the father. This guy is a fool. He's an idiot to allow this to happen. I mean, you have to go back into Leviticus and, and find that hidden verse that talks about stone the rebellious children. This is how, this was their mindset. This is how they viewed. God wouldn't look at him with, with anything but disgust. And Jesus is right, says right. That's how God would look at him if he had your viewpoint. But God doesn't have your viewpoint. And this is the lesson that I'm trying to, to share with you. Notice, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. You know, Jesus' audience gasped. Have you already forgotten what has happened? But notice, not only was the father filled with compassion, but what did he do? He saw him from afar off. He had his eye on the road, and he ran to meet him. Now, time out, time out. Jesus, look, why didn't the father do that when the son was leaving? They're the same distance. He sees him from afar off. He, in the beginning, he could have ran and hugged him and said, don't leave, stay. We're gonna, we'll create a great family together and do great things together. But the father didn't. He was mum. It wasn't until he was returning that he ran to meet him and hugged him and kissed him. Why? What is the difference? And here's the point that Jesus is trying to communicate to really every one of us and certainly to the people in that day. 
He was trying to communicate that there was a disconnect, and he wanted a connection. There was something that was lost that he wanted to find. And when the prodigal son took a step to reconnect with the father, the father ran to him. The father ran to him. Here's the point. God wants what's been disconnected to be reconnected. And when you take a step to reconnect with the father, he runs to you. And some of you may be a prodigal son. Some of you may be, this may be your story. Maybe you've got everybody fooled, but inside you've been running. You've been, you've been running away from God. Or maybe you know someone, or maybe this is your story with a son or a daughter or a grandchild somewhere, someplace. And this is your story. When you run to him, he runs to you. And then he kissed him. Now this was the people are kind of like holding their, covering their eyes because they can't believe this. I mean, remember what they were thinking about? You have clean people, unceremonial clean people. You have respectful people, disrespect. They had categories for people. And where was this prodigal son? He was in a pig pen, but it didn't matter. He ran and hugged, embraced, kissed this young man. And notice what he says. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. Father said, yes, I know, but you came back. Father, I sinned against you on purpose. Yes, I know, but you also came back on purpose. The father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. He restored the son. Let's party. Let's celebrate. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. And then Jesus brings out the adjectives. And I'm closing with this as Paul James comes. Then he brings out the adjectives that he sees in us, in every one of us, every person in your neighborhood, every person that you work with. This is how Jesus sees you. Verse 24. For the son of mine was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. The son was in the dead column, but now he's in the alive column. He wasn't physically dead. There's a metaphor here. He was lost. Lost to who? Lost to me, but now he's found. The priority for our God is to reach not the 99, but the one. Not the nine coins, but the one lost coin. You know, in church, let me just tell you about church. I'm a pastor. I've been, in, I've been in big churches. I've been on staff, and I've enjoyed, oh, the 11 years or so we've been working at Frontline. But I'm going to tell you what most churches, if not all churches, cater to the 99. Our budgets are geared around the 99. Our, our plans, our strategy is around the 99. And if we're not careful, we'll get into this place where we begin to emotionally disagree with people that don't see things the way we see them. You see, Jesus had a way of attracting people that were nothing like him. We tend to get around people that are like us, our people, my people. I like this group. I'm going to hang around them. And we cluster into our 99 you know, Jesus, you know, Jesus said, I mentioned this in a sermon a couple of weeks ago, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. His primary focus isn't on the 99, the connected. 
God is grateful for the connected. He wants you to grow. He wants you to mature. He wants you to, to grow in Him and do great things for Him. But that is not His primary focus. His focus is on the disconnected, the disenfranchised, those who are not part of the 99, the, the people that aren't anything like us. And if we're the church, if we're His hand extended, if Jesus had a way of attracting people that were nothing like Him, and yet they liked Him, what's wrong with the church? Why aren't we attracting people that may not be anything like us, but there is something about those Christians, there's something about those people at that church that I like. I want to know more about what they have. The Lord is in saving the lost business. Don't you think we should be about the Lord's business? And maybe we'll hear someone say in a testimony someday, you know, once I was lost, but now I'm found. Once I was blind, now I see. We need to be about the Father's business. Amen? Amen. With every head bowed and every eye closed, Father, we thank you Lord, for your love to us. Lord, your challenge to us. That there are people outside these walls, outside these doors that, that need to hear of you, need to know you. Your heart is to reach that lost one, that son that's been disconnected and you desire to have a relationship back with them. Father, I pray that, Lord, you would use us, your people, to reach the lost. Father, equip us. Help us to be the men and women you've called us to be, to reach the lost. Father, may this be one of the greatest soul-winning churches in South Florida. Father, we pray it. We ask it in your precious name.